I'm afraid I'm a relative latecomer to classical music. Um, it wasn't part of my childhood, and, and I've still got, to be honest, um, a classic FM in the car, in the background level of knowledge of classical music. But one thing I am aware of, and have noticed at least in some pieces that uh, I've listened to, is that there, there are particular rules about writing a symphony. Um, there are repeated themes that come up. Sometimes they're broken, sometimes they're reflected back, sometimes they're barely noticeable, but they sort of build over time and, and, uh, until finally, often, they come out in their full form quite late on. There, there are different moods. There are loud moments and, uh, uh, and slow um, uh, uh, and quiet, fast and slow um, bits. And it all comes to, to a crescendo where everything... Everything that you've sort of noticed, if you've been listening carefully over the time, comes to a glorious climax at the end. And John's Gospel is a symphony. That's one way of looking at it. It it, it deals often with repeated themes. There is repetition. um, um, But there is progress through the Gospel. And I hope if you've been here over the last months now, you have seen... Something of those repeated themes, but also of the progress towards the great finale. Um, It becomes obvious that we're close to the end in John chapter 12, verse 1. Just uh, glance back at it. It is six days before the Passover, we're told, in John 12, verse 1. Uh, That'll be the third Passover that John has recorded and uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer that this Passover is going to be a big one. And now it's only a week to go. Under a week to go. Chapter 13, verse 1, keeps us on, uh, on track and aware of what's going on. It was just before the Passover festival, we are, uh, we are told. And uh, 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 therefore, as we get to these final chapters in John, always, 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 that, that, that final Passover, that third Passover, is in the air. And in chapter 12, we learned that this great moment was going to be a moment when Jesus was to be lifted up. Chapter 12, verse 32, for instance, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John says that he uses this phrase, lifted up, to indicate the kind of death that he was going to die. We know, who have read the Gospel before, that the kind of death that he would die would be lifted up on a cross on that Passover that was coming. But he doesn't quite tell us that yet in John 12. In John 13, we um, uh, get a bit of an exploration of what that lifted up might look like. What's what's Jesus going to be doing as as he is exalted in that high way so that he's lifted up and drawing all people to himself? Actually, says John, that exaltation will be supremely a moment of humble service. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 3, for instance. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He knew how great he was and that he was about to return to that exalted place with God. So what did he do? Notice the so, not not but, so, verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So... He takes the most lowly place in the household and becomes the servant of his disciples. His exaltation will be a place of service. He is giving himself to serve his people as he dies on the cross. Chapter 14 then Uh, starts to think about another aspect of this language that has become so prominent in in Jesus. Jesus has has said he's going away, he's returning to the Father, he's not going to be with them for much longer. And of course, that uh, meets with a response from the disciples, this is scary and confusing, Jesus. It's been all right while we tagged along with you behind us and you do all the miracles and you do all the wonderful stuff, but but we're going to be on our own? That's going to be awful. And his answer is very clear. No, no, don't don't be confused. Don't be anxious. Although for, uh, for, for a long period, you, my disciples, your descendants and their descendants, effectively, he was saying, are going to be without my visible presence. You'll be okay. And this is why you'll be okay. 15 verse, uh, sorry, 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says to his disciples. That's actually the sixth time he has used that particular phraseology, I am the, and then used uh, uh, some imagery to, to, uh, to follow on it. The first four of those times... He was speaking mainly to outsiders, to casual hearers. I am the bread of life, he said in chapter 6. I am the light of the world, he said in chapter 8. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, he said in chapter 11. And then the climactic word to the outsiders was, I am the resurrection and the life, in chapter 11. But then from chapter 12 onwards, he's starting to teach his disciples, those who've started to follow him. This is the fifth time, uh, sorry, the sixth time that he's... um, uh, he, he said it in the first time that he said it just privately. Uh, and here he says, I uh, am the way, the truth and the life. Christian discipleship is about knowing me and following me. And he's going to say, you don't actually need me physically with you. That's what he goes on to say in the the second half of chapter 14. Don't feel deserted. You will actually have me through the work of the Holy Spirit, another counsellor, another advocate. Verse 16, for instance, of chapter 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth 
The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's difficult to escape the the connection there between God sending his Holy Spirit and actually, in a sense, Jesus himself coming to be with the disciples. I will be with you. Don't be frightened. Don't be anxious. You won't see me, but you will have the Holy Spirit who will be alongside you um, and mediating my presence to you. So that brings us to chapter 15. Do you see how it's, how, how it's built? This, this is what it means to be lifted up. He becomes a servant. Don't be worried that I'm absent from you. He's saying in, uh, in John 14. And then in John 15, uh, 15, you get the seventh of these I am the statements. Here he says, I am the true vine. 15 verse 1. I am the true vine, my father is the gardener, he says. And here his theme is going to be, Don't be concerned. I'm going to make you fruitful. And I'm going to do it by somehow uniting you with me. First of all, notice then the, the fundamental reality that, he, that he's talking about. Um, uh, he is the true Vine, he says in verse 1 there. The Old Testament was full of vine imagery and repeatedly it was used to describe Israel who had failed. They had been the vine of God. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and and attract all the nations to, to worship the true God and they failed. They produced only sour grapes. So Jesus has come to do it properly. He is the true vine. But then he says something very interesting in verse 5. I am the vine, he says. You are the branches. Well, actually, if you look at a vine, the branches are the vine, aren't they? Um, some people have suggested that he's saying, well, well, I'm the sort of the big trunk of the vine and you're the little, you're, you're the little um, uh, spindly bits at the end, so I am the sort of source of life and you are the, the visible growth that is there, out, out there in the world. And that may be so, but whichever the, whatever the image is, there is, a, there is a fundamental union between Jesus and his people. We have life, says the Bible, if we are believers, because the very life of Jesus is infused into us by our connection with him. Just like the sap of a vine gives, the, gives life to the branch. You, you, you may not feel that. You may feel a bit dead a lot of the time. But if you're a believer, what Jesus has done is extraordinary. He has united himself to you. And just as he said, I am the resurrection and the life, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, now he says, I am the vine. 
I give you life. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, though, look at what God is doing. God is the gardener. Did you notice that? I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. Or the vine dresser, you could say. Vine dressers, um, uh, you will see them in the south of France, always carry secateurs. And they always use them savagely. 80% or more of the new growth of a vine is cut off and ends up on the floor of the vineyard. And to an untrained eye, frankly, it looks like the gardener's gone mad with his secateurs. But he is not mad. He knows what he is doing. Jesus explains two things that God is doing. Verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. He says, first of all, there are fruitless vines. Sorry, let me continue that verse and then, uh, then come back to the explanation. He cuts off every vine in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So the first image there is that a fruitless vine, a vine dresser knows he has to cut off right at the base and just completely eliminate it. And then a fruiting stem that has the first uh, bud of uh, uh, grapes on it, he cuts off at a node just beyond that bud so that all the energy of the vine goes into making the fruit and the vine is productive. What's he talking about? Well, he makes it very plain. Um, Verse 6, if you do not remain on me, in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. There is such a thing, says Jesus, as, as branches in a vine that shouldn't be there and are just removed. And people in the church who shouldn't be there and are just removed. It's shocking, actually. But when you've been in churches for a while, you see it. You see people who for a while take an interest in Christ, seem to make some sort of profession of faith, seem to be doing very well. But slowly something something comes into their life and they start to sour. They start to complain that the preacher goes on too long or doesn't understand their life. They start to talk about church life. Sometimes they hop from church to church to church. But actually what's going on is that somehow they have detached themselves from the life-giving Jesus. And they're not bearing any fruit. And in the end, they think, they decided to walk away and never go to church again. But it actually was the vine dresser who went snip. It's a a shocking image 
but Jesus uses it. But those, uh, but others, remember, as uh, verse 2 says, are also pruned, but pruned to make them more fruitful. Both get cut, but for different reasons. If you're a believer here, you will be pruned. Actually, the literal word in the, um, that, that Jesus used is, is cleaned. It was the word that vine dressers used for uh, cutting out the unnecessary growth. You will be cleaned, cleansed. You will be pruned. It is what God does and it feels painful. I remember um, back in my 20s and, and 30s I look back with deep embarrassment frankly all sorts of um, uh, uh, exuberances and immaturity and, and um, pride and misunderstandings and overconfidence and a thousand other things and God has had to prune me and he will continue to do that until my dying day and I can tell you it is painful because he has to root out things that are really precious in my heart and cut them out and it hurts but it's necessary says Jesus it is not his cruel vindictiveness it is his loving desire to make you fruitful if you are a believer don't be terrified of the secateurs don't be frightened when they are wielded on you and it feels painful for some time God has to prune every single one of us it's the only way that a vine will be fruitful. It is the only way that you will be fruitful. There's a story of um, the um, uh, great Anglican preacher before he was great. When he was a young man, Charles Simeon, visiting an older man, Henry Venn. And uh, after he had left, Venn's daughters... Uh, complained about the manner of this, this brash young man. And, and Venn said, said, said to his daughters, um, you see that peach tree over there we've got in the garden? Could you pick me a peach, please? Well, it was actually rather early in the summer. They were completely unripe and green and hard. And the daughters said, what, what, that's stupid, Dad. Why should we do that? And Venn replied, well, my dears... The peach is green now, and we must wait. But a little more sun, a few more showers, the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. And Simeon, if you know his story, in Cambridge, he was pruned savagely. He became the vicar of a church where um, they had uh, pews that you paid for 
and the people continued to pay their pew, for their pew, uh, their pew rent. They locked up the pews and they would not allow anyone else to sit on them and they didn't attend themselves. And so for 12 years, Simeon preached to people standing and sitting in the aisle of his church. For 12 years. The Lord needed to use tough experiences like that to make him fruitful. He was incredibly fruitful in his lifetime. Do not be afraid of the secateurs. So that's what God is doing. He is cutting. He is cutting some out, but for his children he is still cutting to produce them fruit in them. How is God doing it? Well, we could say all sorts of things, but look at what Jesus picks out. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remember, clean and prune, the same word. You are already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Or verse uh, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you and so on. In other words, the words of God, the word of Jesus in particular, is a vital instrument in that pruning process. It is as we face life and the experiences of life and the difficulties of life, reflecting profoundly on the word of God, that we are shaped, we are pruned. Do you read your Bible regularly? Do you reflect on what the Bible has to say about your circumstance that you're going through? About the way that you're feeling? About the way that you behaved yesterday? Do you use the, the, the Bible to turn it into prayer about God forming you into the likeness of Christ. And, then, and do you do it again and again and again, day by day by day? This is how God shapes us. You are clean, says Jesus, because the word dwells in you. The word will do that wonderful fruit-making work. The word of God will fundamentally reveal two things to you. It will reveal, first of all, the love of Christ. Verse 9, for instance, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. It is one of the most wonderful things. As we go through life's experience and we come back to the Bible again and again, we find unconditional love. We find Jesus saying, All of your sins are forgiven. There is nothing in all creation that can separate you from my love. We find Jesus touching lepers, um, restoring his disciples again and again and again, demonstrating real sacrificial love, supremely displayed in his love uh, on the cross as he died for all of our sins, past, present and future. When you go to the word of God, you will see the love of Christ. And it is the love of Christ again and again in these circumstances which shapes us. But we see something else as well. Jesus points it out. Verse 10. We see commands. 
If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. There's no, no disjunction between Jesus loving us and Jesus commanding us, just as there's no disjunction between a parent loving us and a parent telling us what to do. They, they are two sides of the same coin and they are vitally important. Jesus says to you, I love you, whatever. And now out of my love for you, I command you to go and serve me and to obey me. And as, as we learn the love of Christ and the commands of Christ and we seek to, seek to respond to them in our lives and come back to the word of God again and again, slowly, 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 like a vine slowly maturing through the, through the summer, in the summer sun, we become fruitful. And that is exactly what God is creating in us. Look at that. That is the most prominent thing throughout these verses. Verse 2, we've already seen it. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 4, again, remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 8 again, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Or verse 16, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last God chose you to be fruitful in your life. Not fruitful, I, I don't, by fruitful I don't mean that you'll earn lots of money, that you will necessarily pass lots of exams, that you will, you will, you will end your life in, um, in a mansion. Even, there's not even a promise of multiple children to us. That's not the fruit that he's talking about. Now the fruit's very clear in verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The fruit lies in joy explicitly in this passage and perhaps we should extend it as we look at the rest of the New Testament and notice that joy is one of the principal fruits of the Spirit that the New Testament talks about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Sometimes in the Bible, fruit is in terms of people becoming Christians in response to our testimony and that may be a part of it. But the central fruit is a life full of love and joy and peace and gentleness and so on. That is what Jesus wants to create in you. Imagine those first disciples. He's going. They're terrified. They've, they've been following him for uh, a while and seeing the amazing fruitfulness of his ministry. And he's had to reassure them through chapter 14 that it's alright. He's the way, the truth and the life. Just, just follow him and that will be okay. It's alright. He'll be there by his Holy Spirit. And uh, his Holy Spirit will guide them. And it'll be okay. But imagine this. He says, 
you never guess what the fruitfulness that I've had in my life well it's going to start budding and blossoming in yours too as you're united to me you're going to find yourself increasingly formed to be like me you're going to find yourself with my joy my peace my love my gentleness my patience my goodness my kindness my self-control because I'm united to you and I've given you my word and my father will prune you but he'll prune you to make you like me I am the true vine who is fruitful but hey you're the branches how should we respond to that? Well, perhaps let me suggest first, with eager expectation. You you may still feel green and um, unfruitful like a vine at the beginning of spring. That's all right. But as you're pruned by Jesus Christ, you will be fruitful. And perhaps we should respond with quiet determination to let the word of Jesus dwell in us richly so that that pruning process can go on. I promise you it will be painful and not entirely pleasant. But I promise you as well it will produce fruit. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Father, for that repeated assertion of Jesus. That his whole purpose in our life, your whole purpose in our life, is that we bear much fruit. Help us to be confident in that, Lord. And as we live as the branches of the vine, help us to mature into fruitful human beings conform to the likeness of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kate's going to lead us now.